Hello everyone, and welcome back to Perfect Shadows. This week, we'll be continuing with our buddy King Zheng of Qin, who when we last left him had just conquered the six other warring states under his banner, and so became Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of a unified China. Today we'll be covering his short reign, death, and the famous mausoleum built for his afterlife. I'd like to start off with this quote from John Mann's book, The Terracotta Army, China's First Emperor and the Birth of a Nation, which we'll be using extensively throughout the episode, as it describes the man himself as a force of nature. Quote, The first emperor, the man who turned a China of warring states into the core of today's single nation. It was an astonishing achievement by one of history's towering personalities, a man who combined vision, leadership, and utter ruthlessness to force unwilling rivals together. Even more astonishing, it was all done in under 10 years, 231 to 221 BCE a decade which many believe to be the most significant in China's 5,000 years of history. The first emperor took a vague sense that unity was a good idea and thrashed it into an ideal that has anchored China to this day. Unity, character, the army, the vast tomb mound, and the body it contains, these elements are inseparable. Without the first emperor's skills, there would be no unity. Without unity, no organization, no industrial scale artistry, no tomb mound, no need for a spirit army at all. End quote. So let's dive straight into the administration of the first emperor, a man consumed by his own mortality and wading into political waters never before experienced by any other in China's history up to that point. Perhaps it would be best to view this through how he governed the state of Qin before unification. Quote, the answer lay in organization, on every level. Qin society was a state-sized fighting machine. At its heart, under King Zheng's iron hand, were three interdependent elements, efficient agriculture, based on the rich farmland of the Wei Valley, which provided food and excess manpower, a committed bureaucracy which gathered taxes, made lists of recruits, oversaw irrigation, and managed the food supply to the army, and the army itself, a large professional force. End quote. We covered this in our last episode, but it never hurts to refresh the mind. So the emperor set out to remake this new country using the state of Qin as a blueprint. One vital component to his political success was his prime minister, Li Si, who has been called, quote, one of the two or three most important figures in Chinese history, end quote, by Stanford professor John Noblock, kind of like Chin Shi Huang's Chanakya to his Chandragupta, albeit purely in a political sense. First hired by Liu Bu Wei, the former mentor of the emperor and chief minister of his father, Li Si would come to serve the state of Qin for close to 40 years. Now Li Si was every bit as cunning and ruthless as you would expect the first emperor's prime minister to be. There's a story that takes place while the state of Qin is still unifying the future China, where in the state of Han sends its brightest official, a man named Han Fei, who we briefly mentioned in the last episode, on a diplomatic mission to Qin. This man was said to be Li Si's only real rival and perhaps even intellectual superior. So Han Fei arrives in Xinyang and meets with the then King Zheng. They talk, nothing really gets resolved, etc., etc. Li Si, seeing an opportunity at hand, tells King Zheng that Han Fei is too smart to be sent back to Han and too dangerous to be employed by the state of Qin. So, at the behest of Li Si, King Zheng imprisons Han Fei. Li Si later meets with Han Fei in his cell and manages to convince him to commit suicide. Big brain energy. Can't have a rival if he commits suicide. Alright, so Li Si is acting as the emperor's right-hand political man. They roll out a bunch of reforms throughout the newly conquered lands. John Mann writes, quote, So much had been confused when China was divided. Each of the seven states had used different measures of area, different widths of cart axles, different laws, coins, weights, measures, styles of clothing, and scripts. Under the direction of the great Li Si, 
all were now collated, unified, and imposed nationwide. The revision of the script and its widespread imposition was perhaps the one change that ensured China's future unity, because governments could issue edicts that everyone everywhere could read, even if their pronunciations varied wildly. Away went the old script variants with their curly lines, placed with what came to be called the small seal script. It was this script, with its straight line brush strokes, that evolved into today's. As a result, as Dirk Bodhi puts it, China has suffered political disunity, but never has there been a time when she has lost her cultural continuity, a fact which explains why, of all the great civilizations of antiquity, hers is the only one to survive today. End quote. We have here the usual standardization we've seen from our previous episodes. Standardizing these aspects of daily life allows, over time, for the populace to assimilate into a single unified culture. This is also evident in how the empire was divided after conquest. Gone was the previous feudal system with individual states. Chen Shu Chan writes, quote, The whole of China was divided into administrative units of varying sizes. First the Chun, commandery or province, then Xian, district, then Xiang, county, then Li, wards or hundred family unit. All common people were registered at Xian Shu. With the new identity of Xian Shu, the people of the new Qin Empire could no longer be identified or referred to by their native region or the former feudal state, such as Chu Zhen, a person from or of the Chu region or Chu state. They were now uniformly and universally registered and referred to as Qian Shu, the subjects of one Qin Empire. Interregional relocation of populations moving southerners to the north, the northerners to the south, easterners to the west, westerners to the east, interior people to the frontiers, and vice versa. All people were thus uprooted and resettled on new land. End quote. Continuing what started under Lord Shang, the nobility was also formally abolished, with the exception of the royal family itself. New social ranks were instituted, allowing for upward mobility based on service to the state, such as outstanding military achievements. A large centralized bureaucracy also sprang up to preside over the nation, with administrative posts for each strata of governance filled through merit or civil examinations, usually for a length of about three years. Public works projects also took off during the first emperor's reign. With the newly gained resources of the conquered states came an influx in available labor. John Mann writes, quote, Labor now became available on an unprecedented scale not only because of the empire's vastly extended population, but because of hundreds of thousands of soldiers had been freed by the ending of the wars of conquest. Peasants had always been liable to forced service as soldiers and laborers in their own kingdoms. Now they were called up nationwide. Over the next decade, over the next decade a national system of paved roads arose, including an 800-kilometer north-south highway of rammed earth across the Ordos. And this at least is backed by evidence, because parts of the road are still visible today as are the remains of five royal palaces, nine command depots, and numerous beacon hillocks. Other roads fanned out from Xianyang, adding up to a grand total of some 6,750 kilometers, which is close to 4,200 miles. End quote. Now there are two infrastructure projects in particular which stand out. The first is, of course, the Great Wall. Now this is not the iconic Great Wall we think of today, but rather a precursor to it. Sections of it would later be incorporated into the final Great Wall. During this time, the state of Qin was often faced with nomadic tribes, such as the Xiongnu, harassing its borders. So rather than build a completely new wall, the emperor had the bright idea of ordering the walls of the former states demolished, except for the northern sections which served as the new outer borders of the empire. John Mann writes, quote, Supposedly, the grandest of the first emperor's projects was the Great Wall, the most massive state enterprise since the building of the pyramids, with millions drafted in to build it, and millions dying in the process. 
nor did the first emperor build a single great wall from nothing. What he did was to repair and join up a collection of little walls, a project which, considering its 2,500 kilometer length, was quite enough to keep his million-plus workforce employed between his ascension and his death, end quote. These laborers were, more often than not, prisoners serving out jail terms, hence the seeming disregard for their lives. The other significant project is known as the Ling Chu Canal. This was the first canal connecting two river valleys in the world, in this case the Xiang River into the Yangtze River and the Li River into the Pearl River. Around 21 miles in length, it essentially connected northern and southern China, allowing for waterway transport. These two projects are considered part of the three great feats of ancient Chinese engineering. The third doesn't really have anything to do with our story, but it's pretty awesome, so I'll cover it real quick rather than pull a meatloaf and go with two out of three ain't bad. The third great feat is known as the Du Jiangyan, and it's an irrigation system in Sichuan, which was constructed on orders by the first emperor's great-grandfather, King Zhao of Qin. The region was constantly plagued by destructive floods, and King Zhao paid an engineer, Li Bing, to solve the problem. What's so awesome about an irrigation system, you ask? 1. It was made before gunpowder, so Li Bing had to use fire and water to crack rocks to create a channel 66 feet wide over the span of 8 years. 2. Sichuan became the most productive agricultural region in China, so much so that the people of the region are known as being pretty laid back in life because, quote, by eliminating disaster and ensuring a regular and bountiful harvest, it has left them with plenty of free time, end quote. And finally, it works so well that the irrigation system is still in use today, over 2,200 years after it was first built. Pretty sure the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, never fit better. All right, thanks for following me on that tangent. Let's get back to the first emperor and Li Si's shenanigans. Actually, Shenanigans is the wrong word, because this next part is where stuff starts to go off the rails in a pretty dark way, with some of the more infamous moments of the emperor's reign. Although legalism was already the formally adopted philosophy of Qin, Qin Shi Huang, on the advice of Li Si, banned the hundred schools of thought in 213 BCE, chief of which, if you'll remember from our previous episode, was Confucianism. This came about after a banquet, wherein a conservative scholar stood up and went on a tirade about how the emperor by not following the examples of the past and listening to the flattery of his ministers instead, was dooming the future of his empire. John Mann writes, quote, So is his bulldog, Grand Counselor Li Si, the second most powerful man in the empire, who responded in a furious memo to the emperor. In the past, the empire was in confusion and fragmented. Why? Because rulers disparaged the present by declaiming on antiquity. They didn't see the need to sweep away the old, as his majesty has done. His majesty has unified all under heaven, yet still there are those who criticize and debate, which they can do because they have access to the opinions of others. And they're proud of it. If such behavior is not prohibited, then in upper circles the authority of the ruler will be compromised, and in lower ones, cliques will form. The answer is to ban works of literature and poetry, historical documents, and the sayings of the hundred schools of philosophy. They should all be destroyed, Sima Qian has him say in one chapter, and anyone failing to destroy such books within a month should be branded and subjected to forced labor. In another chapter, the punishments are much more dire. Li Si demands, now quoting Sima Qian, quote, that all persons in the empire daring to store these books should go to the administrative and military governors so that these books may be indiscriminately burned. Those who dare to discuss the odes and the histories should be executed and their bodies exposed in the marketplace. Those who use the past to criticize the present should be put to death together with their relatives. End quote. Back to man. Quote, the emperor agreed to this Orwellian attempt at mind control. The books would be destroyed for the purpose of making the people ignorant, and so that no one should use the past to discredit the present. So it happened. 
the poetry books and the historical sources, which were all in the royal archives, were all destroyed. End quote. Numerous scholars believe that the burning of the books may have been an invention by Sima Qian to further paint the first emperor negatively. Although they do not deny that he made efforts to suppress intellectual thought by banning certain works, they believe the works were not actually burned by the emperor. Interestingly enough, the actual burning of the books probably occurred during the sacking of the capital city following the collapse of the empire. Not to mention the amount of books that survived only to decay through neglect by the time of the Han Dynasty, with some sources claiming it to be up to 77% of the entire surviving Qin library of texts. The year following the supposed burning of the books came another infamous act of cruelty, known as the burying of scholars. Tradition has it that following the escape of his two top alchemists, whose sources say were fed up with the emperor's behavior or had attempted to swindle him, the emperor flew into a rage and called for his scholars to be investigated by what amounted to the Qin secret police. The scholars were first accused of violating prohibitions and, following what one can only imagine as ancient Chinese enhanced interrogation techniques, began accusing each other until the emperor said fuck it and just ordered over 460 of them to be buried alive. Sounds pretty gruesome, right? Well, under scrutiny by modern scholars, this too seems to be a fabricated tale meant to befoul the emperor by future dynasties. The event is never mentioned before Sima Qian, and the details get muddled the further away from when it supposedly happened, with later Confucian scholars during the Han Dynasty turning the alchemists into Confucianists to create a sort of martyr legend. So why even mention these two events if scholars pretty much agree they didn't really happen, at least nowhere near the level of severity claimed by Sima Qian? Just to remind our audience that history is written by the victors, not every source can be fully trusted, and that the study of history is constantly changing our understanding of the past. Now a few years before these events, the first emperor had a third assassination attempt on his life. I'm sorry for jumping around a bit in the timeline, but I figured the politics, infrastructure projects, and administrative practices fit better together than trying to just tell everything sequentially. So anyway, much like the previous two attempts for our episode before last, this attempt came as a result of a disgruntled noble, Jiang Liang, from one of the feudal states, in this case the state of Han. Legend has it that he sold all his valuables to build something weighing almost 200 pounds and hired a huge swole guy to throw it. I say something because some sources claim it was a custom cone-shaped thing, a hammer a la Maxwell's silver hammer, or just a big-ass boulder. Their plan was to hide along the path of the road while the emperor was on one of his tours of the empire, then have the cone-slash-boulder-slash-hammer thing thrown at his carriage from a high point, kind of like assassin bowling. Fortunately for the assassin, he hit a spare. Or maybe it was a gutter ball? I don't know, I'm pretty terrible at bowling, but he knocked out a carriage. It's just that it wasn't the emperor's carriage. It was his identical decoy. Sometimes it pays to be paranoid. Anyway, according to the source you read, the bowler assassin either escaped or killed himself to evade capture. Zhang Liang escaped, lived as a fugitive for a few years, and would later come back to help Liu Bang overthrow the Qin and establish the Han Dynasty. Now, as the first emperor was nearing the end of his life, he became consumed with the idea of extending his life for as long as possible, hopefully even eternally. Qin Shi Huang had always been terrified of death and spirits, and he hoped to never cross the threshold if at all possible. Always on the lookout for bad omens, John Mann writes of one instance which displays just how much gravitas he took such signs. Quote, It was the end of 211 BCE, with winter well advanced. He was approaching 50 and was as keen as ever to maximize security and minimize risk. There had been bad omens. The previous year, a meteorite had fallen on which someone had engraved, the first emperor will die and his land will be divided. The emperor ordered an investigation that ended without result, except that the locals were all executed and the offending rock was destroyed. End quote. 
Along with this obsession to cheat death came an ever-increasing descent into paranoia, from which even his most trusted minister, Li Si, was not immune. John Mann again, quote, One day, at a certain palace, he expressed concern at the number of Li Si's carriages and horsemen. Soon afterwards, Li Si cut his entourage. Obviously, said the emperor, someone had passed on his opinion without his permission, which he interpreted as treachery. Of those who had been with him, no one owned up, and in a rage, the emperor had them all killed. From this time onward, whenever he moved about, no one knew where he was. End quote. This paranoia was fed by the alchemists slash magicians that worked for the emperor, as they claimed it was the fact that everyone knew where he was as the reason for why their search for the elixir was unsuccessful. Sima Qian writes, quote, Master Lu said to the first emperor, Your servant and others search for the magic fungus, rare elixirs, and immortals, but we constantly fail to come across them. There seems to be something which is harming us. One of the arts of magic is that the sovereign should sometimes travel about in secret in order to avoid evil spirits. For if evil spirits are avoided, a true being will come. If subjects know where the sovereign dwells, then this is harmful to his spiritual power. A true being enters water but is not made wet, enters fire but is not burnt, traverses clouds and vapors, and lasts as long as heaven and earth. Now the Supreme One governs all under heaven but cannot yet find tranquility. I wish that people were not permitted to know the palace where the Supreme One is staying, for only then may the elixir of everlasting life perhaps be found. Thereupon, the first emperor ordered that 270 palaces and pavilions built within a radius of 200 li from Xianyang should be interconnected by causeways and covered walks, and filled with hangings, bells, drums, and beautiful women, each to stay in its position and not be shifted around. And if anyone mentioned the place which he honored with his presence as he moved about, he would be condemned to death. End quote. With the whole world seemingly against him and seeing death approaching everywhere, Qin Shi Huang made numerous visits to the island of Jifu, which had long been rumored to be the location of the legendary mountain of immortality. Some of the inscriptions he carved are still actually visible to this day. As he was unable to find the elixir of life himself, as he was unable to find the elixir of life himself, he charged a native of the island with finding it for him after, quote, a team of magicians submitted a memo suggesting a research trip. In the middle of the sea, by which they meant the Pacific, somewhere between China and Japan, there are three supernatural mountains called Penglai, Fangjiang, and Yingzhou. Immortals dwell there. We beg that after we have been purified, we may, together with young boys and girls, go there to seek for them. At once, the first emperor dispatched the expedition. Other sources speak of 3,000 boys and 3,000 girls, though Sima Qian offers no numbers. Anyway, they were never heard of again. It was rumored that the expedition ended up in Japan. Undeterred, the first emperor sent out another equally useless expedition years later. End quote. Whatever happened to those people, whether they ended up colonizing Japan or simply feared returning to the wrath of the emperor, we've never been able to find out. His alchemists also began preparing special concoctions of mercury for the emperor, claiming that they would help prolong his life. Spoiler alert, mercury and long life aren't exactly cozy bedfellows. Man writes, quote, the taking of elixirs was a dangerous business, justified only by the supposed rewards. To experiment not only with gold and mercury, the favorites, but also with arsenic, lead, copper, and tin was to poison oneself. Here, too, experience was no match for optimism. To quote a 6th century text that ticks off an array of metal poisoning symptoms, after taking an elixir, if your face and body itch as though insects were crawling over them, if your hands and feet swell dropsically, if you cannot stand the smell of food and bring it up after you have eaten it, if you feel as though you are going to be sick most of the time, if you experience weakness in your four limbs, 
If you have to go often to the latrine, or if your head or stomach violently ache, do not be alarmed or disturbed. All these effects are merely proofs that the elixir you are taking is successfully dispelling your latent disorders. End quote. Think of it as the precursor to those commercials you see on television nowadays about the side effects of Viagra or Pepto-Bismol. Now, for all his misgivings about death being around every corner, the first emperor was also fond of going on tours of the realm. These expeditions were essentially the emperor, along with his retinue, visiting different sacred locations throughout the new empire, primarily as a way of inspecting the kingdom and, quote, emphasizing conquest, the foundation of the new empire, and the arrival of a new social order, end quote. It was actually during one of these tours that the third assassination attempt occurred. And upon reaching the sacred mountains along the tour, places like Mount Heng and Mount Tai, which I actually thought was the mountain in the Range Rover Dragon Challenge commercial, but that's actually Tiananmen Mountain. The emperor's scholars, which interestingly enough were Confucian scholars, would perform rituals and the emperor would dedicate a stele, which, quote, in the words of one scholar, it was the stele that completed his conquest by inscribing the reality of his power in the newly created imperial script into the landscape of his new subjects. End quote. John Mann likens these stella to propaganda posters, something which Charles Sanf seems to agree with, writing that, quote, They were part of what was in effect a mass communication campaign, in which the first emperor used a public ritual to communicate with the population of the empire. He and his collaborators maximized the communicative potential of the progresses by making use of other acts in the same context to spread and make durable the otherwise transitory and localized moment of each progress. He and his collaborators maximized the communicative potential of the progresses by making use of other acts in the same context to spread and make durable the otherwise transitory and localized moment of each progress. The purpose of this communication was to create common knowledge of the new empire, the Qin dynasty, and the emperor who ruled it. The effect of this common knowledge was the ongoing creation and reinforcement of the Qin Empire in a dynamic process of expanding rule. End quote. Propaganda has always been a crucial element of legitimizing one's rule, particularly in a dictatorship. And it is interesting to see how the medium evolves over history. It seems to remain pretty constant in its main goals. In the words of James Franco in the interview, same same, but different. So on his fifth and final tour of the realm, the emperor became ill and died on September 20th, 210 BCE, at the age of 49. Although no official cause was given for the illness, scholars have long speculated it to be due to mercury poisoning from the so-called elixirs administered by his alchemists. As the convoy was still over two months away from returning to the capital of Xianyang, Li Si chose to hide the emperor's death in order to prevent any possible uprisings from occurring. All in all, less than a dozen people knew the emperor had died on the way back. But wait, wouldn't his corpse start to rot and smell horrible just sitting in a carriage for two months in the dead, no pun intended, heat of summer, you ask? Well, yes, it definitely would smell absolutely awful, which is why Lee C. had the bright idea to place two carts of salted or rotten fish, depending on which source you read, one in front of the emperor and one behind, in order to mask the stench. Sima Chan writes that the emperor's clothes continued to be changed every day, he was brought food at every rest stop, and those wishing to speak to the emperor were told he only wanted to communicate by written messages for the rest of the trip. As the emperor had also not written a will, the succession was thrown into a bit of turmoil. The emperor had close to 50 kids, with around 30 of them being sons. Normally, his assumed heir would have been his eldest son, Fusu. Li Si and the chief eunuch, Zhao Gao, however, did not want this to happen, as Fusu's favorite general hated them both. In order for Li Si and Zhao Gao to remain in power, they forged a letter with the emperor's seal and had it delivered to Fusu and the general, 
demanding they commit suicide. Their plan surprisingly worked, and a younger son named Hu Hai became Qin Er Shi, the second emperor. So long story short, his reign ended in the collapse of the Qin dynasty barely three years later. Zhao Gao went on to purge the ministers before betraying Li Si and charging him with treason. Li Si was tortured until he falsely confessed and was sentenced to execution by his own creation, known as the Five Points. This included face tattooing, cutting off of the nose, amputation of the feet or removal of the kneecap, castration, and a good old chop at the waist for the finale. Though boiling alive, quartering, slow slicing, strangulation, or being tied to chariots and torn apart were other available options. Li Si's family was also, of course, executed to the third degree. Zhao Gao and the second emperor continued to screw everything up, and the Qin army suffered some crushing defeats at the hands of a Chu warlord. Zhao Gao forced Qin Er Shi to commit suicide and set up a guy named Zi Ying, who may have been a brother or a cousin of the second emperor, or even a nephew of the first emperor, as the new king of Qin. That's right, no more emperors, now we're back to kings. Anyway, Zi Ying seems to be the only one who is trying to tell the second emperor that Zhao Gao was a conniving asshole. He eventually leads Zhao Gao into a trap and kills him. Zi Ying reigns for about a month and a half before surrendering to Liu Bang, the founder of the Han Dynasty. However, Zi Ying and all his male family members were executed by the Chu warlord we mentioned a few minutes ago. And so ends the fall of the House of Qin. So normally this would be where we wrap things up and end the episode. Except the first emperor was not one to let something as simple as death write the conclusion to his story. Over the course of almost four decades, the first emperor had a massive mausoleum built for him clocking in at 19 square miles and with an equally large pyramid built on top. Originally claimed to be around 375 feet tall, but due to time and erosion, or just because that was an embellishment, now sits at approximately 160 to 245 feet tall. The pyramid is also now covered in trees and growth and looks like a big hill, so much so that people wouldn't really give it a second glance. It was built to be a replica of the capital Xinyang. Sima Chan writes, quote, In the ninth month, the first emperor was interred at Mount Li. Digging and preparation work at Mount Li began when the first emperor first came to the throne. Later, after he had unified his empire, 700,000 men were sent there from all over his empire. They dug through three layers of groundwater and poured in bronze for the outer coffin. Palaces and scenic towers for a hundred officials were constructed, and the tomb was filled with rare artifacts and a wonderful treasure. Craftsmen were ordered to make crossbows and arrows primed to shoot at anyone who enters the tomb. Mercury was used to simulate the hundred rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow River, and the great sea, and set to flow mechanically. Above were representations of the heavenly constellations. Below, the features of the land. Candles were made from fat of manfish, which is calculated to burn and not extinguish for a long time. The second emperor said, It would be inappropriate for the concubines of the late emperor who have no sons to be out free. Order that they should accompany the dead, and a great many died. After the burial, it was suggested that it would be a serious breach if the craftsmen who constructed the mechanical devices and knew of its treasures were to divulge those secrets. Therefore, after the funeral ceremonies had completed and the treasures hidden away, the inner passageway was blocked and the outer gate lowered, immediately trapping all the workers and craftsmen inside. None could escape. Trees and vegetation were then planted on the tomb mound such that it resembles a hill. End quote. I especially love the rivers of mercury flowing through the place paints a pretty vivid picture and would be awesome to see. I mean, there's a Jackie Chan documentary, The Myth, but, well, I also hope I don't need to tell anyone that I'm actually being sarcastic. Anyway, we see this trope occur plenty of times throughout history, where the workers are all killed and interred in the tomb in order to prevent loose lips from becoming robbing trips. Thing is, we can't say whether or not this is true this time, because the tomb has never actually been opened. It was only rediscovered in 1974, 
well over two millennia since it was built. Thanks to modern technology, some archaeologists in 2003 were able to somewhat digitally scan the inside structure of the burial mound, but it seemed to turn up more questions than answers. Jie Shi's journal article, Incorporating All for One, the First Emperor's Tomb Mound, provides an in-depth look at these questions and possible answers. Look for it in the works cited for this episode. So how was this huge mausoleum rediscovered? Well, some farmers were digging a well near the present-day city of Xi'an when they found some clay arrowheads and accidentally smashed into a soldier's head. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That soldier turned out to be one of over 7,000 soldiers which have come to be known as the Terracotta Warriors. I'd say this army is perhaps the thing people most associate with ancient China after the Great Wall. And for good reason. The soldiers all have unique faces, weigh over 300 pounds, and stand at about 6 feet tall. They stand in formation, divided into appropriate units such as infantry, archers, cavalry, and are equipped with everything an army of its day would have used, including weapons, horses, and chariots. The figures were painted when first interred. However, due to the dry climate of the area, the paint flakes off in a few minutes after removing the mud which has been essentially preserving them for millennia. Archaeologists have found over 600 pits in total, and if I'm reading this correctly, only about four of the pits have been fully excavated. Other pits include terracotta figures of acrobats, an underground park slash zoo full of animal figures, ministers, suits of armor, rare animal bones, and mass burial sites for laborers. From what I've seen, however, this may just be a burial site for those who died on the job, not the massive execution hinted at earlier. I was actually lucky enough to visit the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco in 2013 when some of the terracotta warriors were exhibited, and seeing them in person was really an unforgettable experience. I've grown up reading about them, seeing pictures and movies since I was a kid, and none of that really prepares you for coming face-to-face -face with the life-sized 2200-year-old relic of the past. Unfortunately, I can't for the life of me find what happened to all the pictures I took. They're probably in a storage somewhere on a hard drive, so I had to use photos that I found online for our Instagram post. Now, for my two cents, Chen Shi Huang was a towering force who managed to do not just the impossible, but do it quickly. Unify the warring kingdoms in less than a decade, and create the basis for what would be known as China. Although he set out to create a new unified state, and, to a certain point, succeeded, it did not come without a heavy cost to the empire's citizens. His paranoia and constant obsession with escaping death would also prove to be not just his undoing, but also his dynasties. I'd like to leave you today with a quote by Jonathan Clements that I think touches on everything we've covered in the last few episodes. Quote, Demonized for centuries, the first emperor is an imposing figure, even in classical accounts. But the first emperor is also a shadow. In his own lifetime, he was often aloof and hidden from view, protected by distance from killers and admirers alike. None dared look at him or speak his true name, so it is unsurprising that we have little idea of his facial features or character. There is not much in ancient accounts about his personality other than the bold architectural statements and the brutal political decisions. A biography of the first emperor is, by necessity, also a biography of those closest to him. The first emperor himself is that silence in between, the subject they dare not mention, or the distant sovereign in whose name they claim to act. There are inferences that we can draw from certain asides and moments. The conqueror of China is also the man who ran from an assassin, tugging in vain at an unwieldy ceremonial sword that was too big to draw from his scabbard. He was the man who had everything, and yet was plagued by signs of his own mortality. He was the ruthlessly secular thinker, defying the old gods and yet still trying to join their number. Despite his hatred and censure of superstition, we now know that his burial featured divine gestures of faith and power. Despite his hatred and censure of superstition, we now know that his burial featured divine gestures of faith and power rivaled only by the pyramids of Egypt. For 2200 years before the discovery year of 1974, 
Nobody guessed the first emperor's final monument, designed to last forever, but presumed destroyed within years of his death, lay beneath the red clays of Lin Tong. End quote. As always, thank you all for listening. If you've been enjoying the show so far, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening. This week, I've included some photos of the mausoleum, the terracotta warriors, including one which includes some paint and an insane amount of detail. And I think that's it, actually. You can see these on our Instagram, at Perfect Shadows Podcast. Works cited can be found on the website at www.perfectshadowspodcast.com. And if you have any comments or ideas, please shoot me an email through perfectshadowspodcast at gmail.com. I've been playing Ghost of Tsushima for the last week during most every chance I can get, so I think for the next episode we'll focus on someone from Japan. Give me a few weeks and I'll figure it out. Thanks guys, and I'll see you soon.